Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel comics on sale May 19, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Ooh, Tucker, we got a good one this week, my boy! We've got our friend, artist Adam Kubert, on the show this week. He's going to be talking about Wolverine number 90 and Wolverine Black, White, and Blood. But what's going on over in California? Give me the hot goss. Ooh, I just made a little trip over to Joshua Tree National Park where I was awed by the sites that I'd never seen before, landscape I'd never seen before, and also being in the location of the album cover and titular name of a great U2 record. Do you hold up a boombox, <laughs> say anything style, but play, instead of playing Peter Gabriel, you were playing U2? Yeah, I think that's pretty much exactly what happened. Just me wandering around, listening to Where the Streets Have No Name. <laughs> and I feel like we've alienated a plenty lot of our fans. We've weeded them out. All the good ones are left. Yeah, and those who are left, welcome. We got a good one. We are going to tell you about all the brand new Marvel comics on sale this week. We're going to give you our picks. We've got some great picks. It was really tough for us to actually whittle down. Man, there's a bunch of great books out this week. Then we're going to talk about what's out on the collected editions and on Marvel Unlimited. And then we'll get to our chat with Adam Kubert a little bit later. Tucker, one thing we need to do, what's our award going to be called this week? How about like a pull listen up, you damn idiots, you fools. Usually I'm the aggressive one (laughs) in any show that I'm on. I'm I'm the one antagonizing (laughs) the audience. I like this dynamic. Keep it up. But let's start off with our picks this week. I'm kicking things off with the new series, Shang-Chi. Issue number one out this week. It is written by Gene Luen Yang, art by DK Ruan, colors by Triona Farrell, letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Gene and DK did the recent Shang-Chi series that came out a couple months ago. It was great. I dare say this tops it. The first series that we got a couple months ago sort of reestablished Shang-Chi, gave him a new status quo, says here's his family, here's where he is, here's what's going on. It basically put him in control of his father's criminal empire. But Shang-Chi is not a criminal. He's just trying to take back and reform things and move forward. This empire ain't going anywhere, so he's trying to use it for good. And that's sort of where that last series left him off. If you haven't read it, it's all on Marvel Unlimited. So here we pick up with him in this new status quo And I think part of the reason why I clicked with this even more is it puts Shang-Chi firmly in the Marvel Universe. The storyline is called Shang-Chi versus the Marvel Universe. And you've got Spider-Man in here. You've got Shang-Chi sort of like trying to reconcile who he was, who he is, and who he wants to be. And you know, Jin Luen Yang has that voice for Shang-Chi down, the mix of reserved, smart dude, Action superstar, superhero, compassionate, empathetic brother, all those elements come into play here. Uh, You got a little romance going on. You've got comedy. You've got monsters and all kinds of weird stuff. It is, it's terrific. It's kind of what I would have hoped for in getting a Shang-Chi book right now at the point where we're at in the middle of May of 2021, and it's not going to stop. Next issue is Shang-Chi versus Captain America. I will say that also the last page of this issue has me sort of salivating for what direction they're going in with this book. I really love the color palette of that book. Shout out to Triana. It's a beautiful, beautiful looking story. Mm-hmm. All right. My pick this week is fantastic for life story, the 60s. This is the start of a life story in the vein of Spider-Man life story, which was one of the greatest revelations of the past couple of years. And it seems like The FF, the first family, are prime candidates for a similar retelling, a similar sequential sort of in real time story that takes place over the course of the years. And we really can dive into how all of these stories that we've gotten to know these characters through and with can add up and can pile up and we can see a deeper real world understanding or impacts on these characters. It's just a great character study overall. And of course, I think with issue number one, we start that off in a brilliant way. It's written by Mark Russell with art by Sean Isaacs, colors by Nolan Woodard, and letters by VC's Joe Caramagna. It's interesting to kind of read between the lines here and see what Mark does because it really feels like 
it's a huge task just to do the 60s, let alone to do the entire 60-year history of the Fantastic Four and tell that over the course of only a few issues. With all of that in front of him, with all of that being asked of him, what does he do? He doesn't try to say, all right, well, let me just do a bunch of montages. Let me just try and cover as much ground as possible. It really feels like he's just taking the most human approach possible to this, grounding these characters, putting them in real circumstances where you really understand their perspective, you understand their frustrations, you understand their connections to each other. It's all in there, which I think, especially in an issue number one, is so important, especially when we're going to go with these characters through so much. We need to know where we're starting off with. That's not to say that there isn't huge, enormous cosmic adventure taking place in this issue because, well, by golly, it's the Fantastic Four in the 1960s. Of course there has to be. And I got to say, Sean Isaac, the work he does character-wise, the work he does acting, the work he does with a character like Galactus, the work he does with the void of outer space itself, I just think it's conveyed so wonderfully. I just love these life story ideas. I want to read every single character all the way down to the most esoteric, minute characters. I want to read a beef life story. Look that one up on the wikis, folks. But this is just a a really, really great start. Yeah. I will say I I was reading it and I was like shouting at the comic, like, what about so-and-so character? Which I think is great because they can tell the story that they want to tell and thread things in. And you get the sense that like, We're going to see how these other elements come to bear. And what may not be here right now doesn't mean it's not in the book. They're telling this tale by decades. I'm excited for the next issue for sure. Totally. Well said. A second issue I am so excited for. It's our third pick of the week is Way of X number two. It is written by Cy Spurrier, art by Bob Quinn, colors by Shava Tartaglia with letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. You give me Nightcrawler, just feeling around, trying to figure out what's going on with him. And then you throw in Legion in here and you give me Nightcrawler and Legion sort of hanging out. And then you take some folks to the Green Lagoon and you've got Dr. Nemesis having drinks with Fabian Cortez, all these little elements in here. It's wonderful. It is what I think Cy does so well of absurd, of heartbreaking, of funny, of fast moving, of quirky which is sort of all part and parcel of what makes great X-Men comics. And you really, like at the forefront, you've got Nightcrawler, who is trying to figure out religion in this new era of mutantdom and Krakoa and how that factors into things. And then Legion, of course, David Holler. Everybody is, I think, more familiar with him now than ever before after the Legion TV show and the great X-Men Legacy series. How he is used in here. And you can tell that Sai is just the biggest Legion fan and wants to put him in a place where you feel for him, you're scared of him, you're scared for him, and he feels like he has a place in mutant kind. It's wonderful. There's one moment in here, this is both a warning and a reason to pick up the book, where it's a full panel and everybody's vomiting. <laughs> if you want to see Dupe vomiting... This is your book. If you want to see Dazzler vomiting, this is your book. It is great. Ultimately, though, it does hinge on Nightcrawler and Legion sort of together going through different things. I won't spoil anything, but there's a revelation by the end of this issue, which knocked me on my ass. And I was so excited for it. And I can't wait for more. We will have the Hellfire Gala for our next issue, but um, it's not going to stop. This is really great. Yeah, and hey, uh, we've been releasing these great previews for each book and each team of what to expect for the Hellfire Gala, uh, maybe some little insights that you might not have had before. I went out and talked to each editor of all the X-Men books and asked them, hey, what, what are the key moments that have led to this point? And so there are some really valuable insights, and we've been releasing those for each of the Hellfire Gala books. So I would just say, go take a look at preview art in there, get excited for Hellfire Gala because it is gonna be huge. So much fun to be had there. All right, now that's what we have for our picks and we are jumping into our pull. Listen up, you dang jerks. 
because we got some good comics coming down the pipeline for you here, uh, starting off with Amazing Spider-Man number 66. Uh, it feels like the drum is starting to beat a little bit faster and faster and faster when it comes to Wilson Fisk and his importance to this story. It's a character I adore. But aside from the Wilson Fisk business, there is so much going on in here. I think it really overall captures the perfect spirit of a Spidey book because you have these villains conspiring. You have Pete sitting on the ledge of a skyscraper dealing with the personal ramifications and then, you know, this business that has been sticking around and sort of plaguing him in a broader sense over the course of these 66, yes, 66 issues. So more of the uh, kind of classic Amazing Spider-Man villain action that is coming this way in uh, issue 66. Yeah. Over in Black Knight, Curse of the Ebony Blade, number three, I'm giving my pull, listen up, you jerks, award of the week to Elsa Bloodstone, who, look... You give me Elsa in a book, I'm into it. I love it. Uh, this is another size barrier joint, and uh, you can tell Elsa is another character. He, he, he loves writing, and he lets her um, explode someone's head in order to save that person's life, <laughs> and it's great. This book is very lore-heavy, I will say that, which I think is, is great. If you are excited about Black Knight and what that character is all about, this is a title you should check out. Oh, yeah. All right. Next up, we have Captain America number 29. Folks, can't believe it. It's the penultimate issue of uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' run on this series. It has been quite a ride, a really fascinating, totally unique look at this character, of this character's place in the world, in the Marvel Universe, in the United States. So, so much to look at there. And always a particularly poignant time to read a book like this, to read a book centered on Steve Rogers, given that we're in a big anniversary year for Cap. Anyway, the question arises when you read a book like this, especially if you know that it's going to be coming towards the end of a run of where are we going? How are we going to wrap this thing up? What are the big takeaways that we're meant to leave this series with? What are we going to think about? What are the dramatic turns that are taking place? I was very surprised at the answers to that question, at least as far as it comes from the second to last issue. I did not expect the events that take place here, and I really didn't expect just the overall vibe and tone of this particular issue. Hey, speaking of Wilson Fisk, he makes an appearance in this issue, which I really love. I feel like there's something about Wilson Fisk that I think Ta-Nehisi Coates is like made to write. There's a really unique connection there. But overall, we're speeding towards the end here, and it's all up for grabs. I really, really am surprised and excited to see how we wrap this up. Yeah. All right. Over to champions number seven. I'm giving my pull listen up, you jerks award of the week to Luciano Vecchio. Holy moly. Seeing his art, it's like watching someone come into their own every single issue more and more and further and further. The fashion, the way he draws Sam and Miles as they're in their like internship outfits. It's so cool and so thoughtful to the way he draws, like the new costume that Vision has to the simple things of like Kamala and, and her room and like her headset that she has on and the clothes that Riri wears and dad Vision coming in and popping in to like embarrass Viv. I love, love, love everything that Luciano is, is doing in here art-wise. Uh, the book is really cool in, in like seeing where the champions' kids are sort of finding their feet again after everything that had gone on with Kamala's Law and everything and moving forward. The last panel is great, too. It's got Kamala doing a spit take, and it's one of the funniest expressions I think we have in comics this week. We need to get Luciano on the show. Yeah, He's got some really cool stuff happening with the Marvel's Voices Pride book. I think that would be really neat. Yeah, totally agreed. All right, next up we have Daredevil number 30, uh, a book that when we started recording, I was told, Tucker, you're not allowed to make that your pick of the week because I so often pick Daredevil as my book of the week because it's just so good. My pull listen up, you dang jerks, goes to Marcio Meniz, who's the colorist of this book. I think he particularly shines in the nighttime sequences in here. There's a really gut punch, amazing relationship that's happening here, a great sort of training sequence and then fight sequence that sort of caps it all off. It's beautiful. And I was sort of stunned by the organic feeling of like seeing Electra being 
just Electra, having conversations, teaching lessons, being a person, and then transitioning into Daredevil mode. You just really feel like this character is at home as a superhero in the Marvel Universe. You feel like she belongs in that suit. It just works. You feel the stakes of everything. You feel the confidence overall, not just of that character, but of the creative team. So shout out to Chip, as usual. Shout out to Marco Cicchetto, uh, who does a beautiful job. And shout out to Daredevil, longtime mainstay, Mike Hawthorne, who also jumps on pencils in this issue. Yeah. Uh, all right. So four of the next five books I had to self-edit and not choose. Um, <laughs> three of them because they are similar to Daredevil repeat choices of ours, and I was trying to mix it up. But Heroes Reborn, number three. Could have been one of my picks of the week. This one focuses on Blur, who is the speedster of the uh, Squadron Supreme of America. And look, you get that fastest man alive vibe from him. There's some really fun and interesting ways that Jason explores this type of speedster character. And like, there's so much going on. He forgets what he's talking about. He, he loses his train of thought, but he comes back to it constantly over and over again. So fast. He watches 48 TVs at once. He burns through all these cell phones, he goes on all these adventures. For those of you who are big Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver fans, the Silver Witch is in here, who is the sort of amalgam in this Heroes Reborn universe of those two characters, which is awesome. Seeing that version of Wanda in here and what that means for the Heroes Reborn universe is a hoot. And on top of all that, we've got the backup story in here is uh, the one that by Jason Aaron and, and McGinnis focuses on uh, sort of Blade and Captain America recruiting the new Phoenix to help try to fix this universe. And it's gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. Speaking of gorgeous, good God, some beautiful stuff on the way in Immortal Hulk, Time of Monsters, number one. There are two stories in here. The first one is the titular Time of Monsters, which is written by Alex Pacnadel and, of course, Al Ewing, but with script by Alex. Uh, and then the one and only Mr. Juan Ferreira, the one that we freak about every single time he does a book. But he's doing something really interesting in here. I kind of dare not even try to describe the story that's being told here. It's sort of a story, but for time, it takes place thousands of years ago, and it explores the first Hulk, the direction it goes, the genre that it embraces, that it plays in page by page. It feels like new, unexpected things are happening where you, it just makes you go, I can't, I can't believe they're doing that. I can't believe this is happening. Even the the way that Juan depicts the one below all, yeah. which is something that we've seen a bunch <laughs> of times to great effect in the pages of Immortal Hulk. But it's just so, like, that page has stuck with me since reading this issue. The second story in here is called A Little Fire, and that's written by David Vaughn with art, colors, and letters by Kevin Nolan. And, oh my God, just when you think it couldn't get any better, this is an amazing kind of nightmare story that takes place in here. I don't want to talk about what that is, but I cannot recommend enough that you go pick this up. This is, yeah, I, I'm right there with you, Ryan. This is one of those that I immediately had the instinct to pick and there's just so much to love in here. So my pull listen up absolutely goes to the art teams of these books um, because there's some beautiful and really imaginative stuff happening here. It just feels like Immortal Hulk has become a brand for cutting edge storytelling, for strange storytelling, weird storytelling in the best way. And I think this book is emblematic of exactly that. Yeah. Also, you give me a story by Kevin Nolan. <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. I'm going to continue on with Mighty Valkyries number two. There is so much to love in this book. I am such a big fan of what Jason Aaron and Thorin Grunbeck are doing on this series. I think there's an amazing command of the action in this series, even over the course of these two issues, but also the emotion. Like you are really right there with these characters in a very visceral way. And what this team is doing uh, in the Jane story here with sort of horror elements, but also action, so much balance happening. It's so beautifully done. And now we go over to the Runa story. It's a continuation of that exact same thing. It's so much fun now because this character has a name. We have the name for this character that was revealed at the end of issue number one. There's so much to love all in the story end. And of course, of course, of course, pull listen up, you jerks, because we have Mattia Dei. Ulysses 
doing 360 dunks on every single page. Also, shout out to Erica Durso, who takes care of the Ruin story and does a beautiful job, a bunch to love in Mighty Valkyries. And I think it's a book that is still exploding outward in imagination. There is just so much to explore when it comes to that book. All right, over to Runaways, issue number 36. It's one of the best friggin' comics and continues to be. Holy moly, this issue is a roller coaster. When you open it up and you've got a couple of pages of Chase, he's like, I'm going to make some moves. I got my man bun. I'm going to flirt with the like amazingly cute woman who works at the store. And he does that. And he's like setting up a date. And then boom, everything changes. I don't want to give away what happens in here, but the title of the issue is done inside the book in a sort of homage to the back to the future title treatment, the font and the direction and the coloring and everything. And that plays a major factor in what happens in this issue. There's smooching, there's longing looks, there's sadness, there's sighs, there's sweetness, there's walks, there's talks. There's like just some of the best dialogue and emotional sort of storytelling going on in comics right now. And especially like the last page, just the looks on the characters' faces as they realize what's going on and who they run into. I adore this book. Everybody should be reading it. All right. Now from Runaways, we head over to Star Wars Bounty Hunters. This is issue number 12, and it is yet another incredible prelude to War of the Bounty Hunters target solo shout out to this entire creative team because i really feel like they have such a command of the pace and rhythm of this book and not just of this book of but of a star wars story the entire issue is non-stop running falling over crashing speeding away in a starship arguing fighting booms crashes whooshes all of it uh it's all packed in here really really big kudos to this creative team who have brought together an incredible entry in this war of the bounty hunter story yeah all right over into the pages of the trials of ultraman number three we're getting deeper into sort of the mystery of what's going on there's uh the sort of fake kaiju that are being created and how they're being created but big cool moment in here which gets my pull listen up you jerks of the week is the appearance of a favorite kaiju from ultraman lore jiris He's big. He looks kind of familiar to many people, but he's got a really cool fin around his neck. Seeing that character pop up and, and really getting into it next issue, I'm very excited. Oh, yeah. All right. Now we wrap things up this week with Wolverine number 12. I have been very vocal in the past about how much I love the occultish weirdness going on in the pages of Avengers. And now we are diving back into that corner of the Marvel universe with Wolverine. Certainly we got to know that. I think in early issues, we were dealing with that in a big way. Obviously 10 of swords happened. There's this, this book has been all over the place in terms of covering so, so much ground just over the course of 12 issues. And now we're diving back into that occultish, vampiric weirdness that I love so much. Just in the opening pages, we have Logan like punching a built like a church steeple through <laughs> vampire. Good God. It's so awesome. It just works amazingly. I also got to say forge spotting. Yeah. Alert, alert. Forge is here. And that is something that I always am super excited about. Speaking of 10 of swords, I really loved this issue because of certain connective tissue that it has to what was an amazing crossover event. And it's just one of those things where it just goes like, it all matters. And in particular, in the Reign of X, it all matters. Every single place these characters go, everything they do, it all adds up. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, when it comes to Wolverine, a character that's so central to not just, uh, his own story, but to so many other stories, uh, there's a lot going on. So a lot to dive into a lot to love when it comes to Wolverine number 12. Okay. That's what we have for fresh floppies this week. Now heading over to the collections shelf. There is a ton of stuff. There are four count them four collections starring the incredible Hulk. We also have speaking of the hellfire gala, Emma Frost volume one, higher learning. There's a captain Marvel versus rogue book in there. So much to dive into for collections this week. 
Yeah, over on Marvel Unlimited, we've got some great King and Black issues. Ooh, King and Black, Black Panther. It's so good. Uh, you also got King and Black Thunderbolts, which is fantastic. New issue of Wolverine Black, White, and Blood, and plenty more over in Marvel Unlimited. Definitely go check all that out. And while you're there, what else should they read? They should read Wolverine number 90 and Wolverine Black, White, and Blood because you will get two stories brought to you by the one and only, the legend that is Adam Kubert. Those are the issues that we're talking to him about right now. Tucker, I'm I'm dreading the conversation we're about to have because we are about to talk to one of the meanest people in the world of comic books that I've ever met. Get ready, because he's going to tear you a new one. We've got uh, current Wolverine artist Adam Kubert on the show. Adam, how you doing? I'm doing good, Ryan. How are you? <laughs> All, those are kind words. That's a kind <laughs> opening. <laughs> Yeah, no, you, one of the people that I've had the, the pleasure of spending a good amount of time with uh, the last couple of years as we were doing stuff, episodes of Marvel Live together, listening to you in the Marvel Creative Retreats and stuff, and Tucker and I are just having a blast talking about your comics work of late here on the show, so it's real good to see you. Same here. It was really fun doing those Marvel Lives, and I loved coming in to do it. It was great. So we're here. We're doing the Reading Club. Adam, you're currently drawing Wolverine. You've got a lot of Wolverine under your belt. So we're going to get into talking about Wolverine Black, White, and Blood, number one. We're going to be talking about Wolverine number 90 from the 90s. But before we get into that, I was trying to look up your first Marvel work. There's a couple of small gigs, but when you joined Marvel, was it your first regular work, Ghost Rider Blaze Spirits of Vengeance? No, actually, my first job was Mark Mercer, or maybe it was a Conan, but it was it was well before Spirits of Vengeance, maybe like 1990. I believe I inked over my brother Andy on that book. The tale of the tape here is Savage Sword of Conan, issue number 67, letterer, August 1981, cover date, and then Mark Hazard, Merc, issue number nine, <laughs> which is the greatest title. I don't even yeah. know this book, but you're right. Andy was penciling it. I'm glad my memory isn't shot just yet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my point being, that those were sort of like, small one-off gigs, you come in on Ghost Rider Blaze in 92 for like a run. And I remember the cover to number six is really rad as hell. It's Venom and it's the chain. Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's a lot of fun. Those were, those were fun. Thanks. Adam, you of course come from a, a comic book royalty. I'll say your father, Joe Kubert, who's done uh, amazing work for decades and decades and decades, uh, started the Joe Kubert School, uh, which has helped create careers for numerous comic book creators. Your brother, Andy, doing amazing work for Marvel and DC and many more. Well, what's that like being part of a comic book family? <laughs> I mean, it's what I knew. You know, my dad drew. He was always home. When I did go out, I knew he was always going to be up working, you know, so <laughs> there's that, you know, there's no such thing as sneaking into the house, but it was nice because he was always around. And it really wasn't until later on when, you know, as I, in a teenager and whatnot, where I went to one or two conventions with him till I realized how special he was to not just me, but to a lot of people, you know, having a brother in the business was great because we were constantly, you know, showing things back and forth and feeding, you know, off of each other's enthusiasm and jealousy. And it was really a, a nice, healthy environment to grow up and edge into this business. When you're working with family, like say when you were, you know, inking Andy, something like that, is there something, you know, in your blood that allows for some sort of symbiosis when you're working with a family member versus someone else, or is it just kind of a gig like any other? It, it's interesting you bring that up because my first thought that, that comes up are the Hildebrandt brothers. They were twins. You ever, you know, Greg and Tim Hildebrandt, fantasy painters and Lord of the Rings and, 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 you know, Star Wars, because I, I mean, I was a big fan of their work. I, I know Greg personally, but I know they, you know, you talk about being in sync. One would start on one side of the painting. One would start on the other side of the painting and they'd meet in the middle. I mean, you can't get any, and they were twins and you can't get any in more sync than that. 
Andy and I, I mean, we shared some things and we were completely different in others. You know, we shared work ethic because my dad was a workhorse and that's what we grew up with and that's what we knew. And when we went through the school, he cracked the whip. There was no such thing as not turning in an assignment at that school. That said, our similarities are also storytelling. I don't think our drawing styles are similar other than they bend more towards the realistic rather than the cartoony funny. Although I can do that also, but I prefer the more serious. But in sync, as far as like penciling and inking, knowing what he wants, once he does his penciling job, now it's my job to crank it up a couple notches. And I hope he likes it as it is when I work with other creators, writers included. Now it's my job. Now it's time to do the best I can possibly do with the work that's in front of me. That's my job. So in that respect, it wasn't really reading his mind. It was more do the work. Did you ever feel like you had more leeway to kind of push a little further, to go a little further, to take some liberties that you may not have felt like you were quite allowed to with another artist? No, I always take liberties. (laughs) (laughs) I always take liberties, you know, and, and... It's funny. Um, I I like pushing an envelope. I believe you push and push and push until they pull you back. I just did a cover and I probably can't say what it is because I just turned it in this morning. But I took a little bit of a chance with the style. It was in line with my cover sketch, like totally in line. But sometimes when you're under pressure, when when you have restrictions, creatively, it comes out better. Deadlines are my best friend. I hate them and I love them. Because when you have to make quick decisions, when you have to go by your gut, that's when the thing really starts to come out well, as far as I'm concerned. I, I got a million things. I love talking to you because you, you get my wheels turning. You know, you're talking about you good, don't do the, the comedy stuff much, or it's not played for comedy, but the cartoony stuff. I was thinking about what is it, Incredible Hulk number negative one? Yes. It's a very dark story, but at the same time, there's a lot of like weird cartoony stuff in it. And I love that book. I reread it recently and I was like, man, this fits in so perfectly to the the Hulk that we've come to understand and like the psychology of it all and that storytelling, things that are going on in there, it's wild. That's one of my favorite books that I've done. Drawing Stan Lee as the narrator through the book, that was a four panel grid that I shoehorned myself into because that was the flashback mm-hmm. issue. That was a Marvel line-wide initiative where everybody was to shoehorn their style into a grid. No overlapping panels. Let's get back to you know straight storytelling. So, of course, I tried to take it a step further. Rather than just a, a grid based on what was written for me, I'm going to do a four-panel grid. And I'm going to get Peter's story into this, you know, like it or not. And I liked it so much, I continued that four-panel grid for, I don't know how many issues after that, but I continued it because it really forced you to be more creative to concentrate more on what's going on in the panel and shapes of the panels themselves. But that was a great, I, I loved working on the Hulk. And Peter is an amazing, amazing writer. And I've been fortunate to have worked with such gifted writers. And I love doing it now as much as I did when I started. Maybe it's because I give myself parameters or I push myself to try to do it a little differently. You know, my dad would always joke with me, you know, I'd have a hamburger in front of me. I always draw a face on the hamburger and the ketchup. You know, I'm always trying to, you know, do it a little bit different. And to this day, that's the way I am. I'm just put together that way. We're going to have to get into Wolverine a little bit, but there's a a lot of things we want to talk about. You had mentioned your father, Joe, and your brother, Andy, and it's very apparent, very clear. You all three are very different. But at the same time, me as somebody who reads every single comic book that Marvel puts out every week... I very clearly see the connective tissue to the three of you. There's a a realism, a grittiness, a kinetic energy. I can pick out all three of your styles clearly, but at the same time, I know that they are all coming from the same roots. And it's a real neat thing to see. I love looking at my dad's work and Andy's, but my dad's, I just have envisioned the old war covers that he's done. I mean, they're so classic. And he's not looking at anyone when he does those things. We look at everyone. We have so much to look at and so much to be influenced by these days. And it's right at our fingertips. But they were, you know, they getting paid by the page. 
there were no conventions. They weren't selling their work. They were, you know, they do two pages in a day. You know, that's how much money they make. He also wasn't thinking about drawing. He was just sketching. You know, my dad, a bead of sweat would never form on his brow. He cares about deadlines. But if he's got five pages to finish in a day, he'll do it. He won't, you know, he won't complain. He'll just sit and, and, and do it. You know, for those of you that are familiar with my dad's work, that's really where comics started. Him and Jack Kirby and, and all those guys, you know? Yeah, I, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because I think, of course, we're a Marvel show. But your dad didn't do as much Marvel work in the time period where, like, he was most known for. There's a lot of DC stuff, Sergeant Rock and things. So if, like, if we have folks who are just, you know, weaned on Marvel only, they may not know your your dad's work as well. So I would definitely suggest anybody go out there, go check out. Yeah, I'm looking at 577 story credits for your dad at DC alone. Yeah, he did a lot of DC work. He did some Marvel work, but he also did a lot of work, personal stories, you know, facts from Sarajevo, Jew gangster, Yussel. I mean, it was that kind of motivation. It wasn't work. It was just, I feel like I'm going to do this. And he does it. A lot of us say, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do this. But he did it. <laughs> you know, really amazing. Let's get into Wolverine number 90, which went on sale December 13th, 1994. This is right before Age of Apocalypse. So I guess Age of Apocalypse kicks off right in the beginning of 95. We don't see a lot of big comic stories happen right at the beginning of a year, but I like that. I like that, like, start a new year, everything has changed. Like, Hold on to your butts, because this is some weird stuff happening. This is the last issue before everything changes, and we get Weapon X for a couple of issues. And this is issues, uh, of course, penciled by you, Adam, written by Larry Hama, colors by Marie Javins, inks by Mark Farmer and Dan Green, the cover here by yourself and the Hildebrand Brothers. I went a couple years ago, and James Syme at the Isotope in San Francisco, he was able to find me one of their old calendars, the Lord of the Rings calendars. I love that stuff. They're amazing. Yeah, they did a variant cover for the new Wolverine series over one of my drawings. I think it was for Wolverine number three. Mm-hmm. Greg didn't know what to do with it because he was working, I believe he was working over inks that I drew to do his variant. So we had to talk. He says, what's the story about? What's the story? I said, well, you know, this character jumps into Wolverine's head and all these people, Sabretooth and Lady Deathstrike attack him, but it's it's really happening, but it's not really happening. He says, that's all I need to know. And he painted this amazing interpretation of a finished cover, you know, which is really hard to do. So, I mean, Greg is a terrific, terrific guy. And it's really great to work with him again after all those years. So Wolverine number 90, I think if our listeners go out and check that out on Marvel Unlimited, it may be obvious to them why this is a noteworthy issue, why this is such a fascinating read. But Adam, what made you pick this one? That book I was especially proud of. And again, I look to make things difficult for me. (laughs) And Wolverine 90 was no exception. When we talked about the issue, it was a big fight between Wolverine and Sabretooth right before we go into Age of Apocalypse. And I'm thinking, geez, this is such a, a big story. Let's make it a big issue. Let's do gatefolds. That would be a great thing to do. Let's make the pages bigger. Let's do gatefolds. And sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for because a 20-page book or 22-page book can turn into 28 pages. And those gatefolds really, you know, you you really got to nail them. They're (laughs) time-consuming, you know. Adam, before you continue on, can you explain what you mean by gatefold for any of our listeners? Because we don't see it that much these days, even in covers or definitely not in interiors. Can you explain what the gatefold is? Absolutely. A gatefold, uh, there were two single gatefolds and two double gatefolds. A a double gatefold will have four pages on it. Single gatefold will have three pages on it. And my idea was because you have a double gatefold, you have twice as many pages in a single image to play with. That's a cool thing for such a cool story. Yeah, it's like taking the idea of a double page spread and then just like expanding it and making it even bigger and wilder. We're reading it on Marvel Unlimited, and I wish I had a paper copy of it here because it while it's great, you don't get to realize it the way it was meant for. So like in the the digital version, listeners, if you read this and you're like, why are there these white bars on the side of the, the page when I get to certain parts? 
it's because it was meant to be turned over and, and sort of handled in a really cool way. Like that's the, I love reading comics. Like you should be able to like <laughs> manipulate yeah. them and, and move well, them. It's funny. That book has never been reprinted as far as I know, because of all the gatefolds. But if you want to know something cooler, I actually have all of the originals to that book. Wow. I bought the inked versions from the inkers because inkers get back a third of the originals. The the penciler gets back the other third. Mark Farmer and Dan Green inked that book. Um, I don't know if you guys would be up for this, but I have them if you'd like to see it. All right. So. Wow. I mean, what do we have here? We have like a four foot long uh, poster sized image here. That's the likes of which I've certainly not seen in person, only in like museums. It's so incredible. And including the credits there, which is just so funny to me. But seeing Sabretooth on on display in that way, as as we are here, this is like, I don't really even know how we would describe the page numbers with a, with a gatefold, but it's, it's kind of the second turn of the page, I suppose. Hey folks, head over to marvel.com right now. We're gonna have these on the site these high-res scans of the pages that we're looking at right now. I believe these are have never been seen before, so head over to marvel.com. You'll be able to take a look at the pages that we're talking about right now. And it's interesting, when you look at it on Marvel Unlimited, you can see the dividing line in the middle of the page. It's right, right in front of Sabretooth's head. I, I, I'm, I'm reeling a little bit from seeing these. It, it is, that is really something to behold. It, so... You just must have like a, a library of just your own work. I don't know. That feels like a logistical challenge <laughs> in and of itself. It, it is a challenge and I shouldn't do it. <laughs> you know, I should get rid of it. <laughs> it means something to me. And I've tried to figure out different ways to get rid of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> How about a museum? Yeah, this is this is neat. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is working with Larry on this issue. And I remember talking with Larry, who I think is one of the most underrated, amazing writers of his generation in the 80s and 90s. But he's now doing really kick-ass work for us, like now, too. I love Larry's work. Uh, his Wolverine is some of like the stuff that made me love the character. But Larry would, one time I talked to him and he said that he only thought one page at a time. He wouldn't like really think about what was coming next until he finished writing that page. And then he would say, okay, now what's the next step for the character? What's the collaborative process for the two of you on a book like this, where you're like, I'm just ripping off all boundaries and I'm, I'm telling <laughs> this kind of story. What was that like between you and Larry Hama? You know, this particular story, I, I forget what the script was like. I think it was my idea to do all spreads but I would combine the pages into two pages. I could be wrong though. Um, you know, this was this, this one, I, I don't remember how he wrote it, but I do remember, you know, working with Larry was a great experience because he's an artist's writer. You know, he's an artist himself. He would lay out books for other artists to draw from, you know, along with write the stories. So he knew what, would get artists interested and excited about the work as he did what the readers would like to read. So it was very unusual to have that built into one, one creative person. And the stories were always a blast, always fun. And, you know, again, once the work leaves the writer's hands, now it's my job to tell the story. I'm going to tell it to the best of my ability as well as I can. I'll never add characters. I'll never take characters away but I may move something from one page over to another. I may combine something into a splash and squeeze panels over, over here. Unless there's a logistical thing that's going on in the story, I generally won't call or email the writer and, and say, hey, you know, I was thinking of adding a panel. That's kind of like my job. So um, from what I've heard, I think Larry liked it. It's really unbelievable the talent personnel-wise that packed into the story we're, we're looking at here. I'm, I'm curious in that way. Obviously, Larry is among the most experienced comic book hands, certainly today, even looking back then. I mean, what a consummate pro. But when you're working, Adam, with someone maybe who's less experienced, do you approach these things differently? Do you find yourself 
maybe communicating a little more often with a less experienced writer, someone who maybe is a little bit more new to comics, new to the medium, or is it something that, you know, you just find yourself, like we were talking about earlier, taking the opportunity to take more liberties, to shepherd things along? Mm -hmm. Of course, it always matters who you work with. You want to work with the best. But there are, you know, there's there's different levels of best. And I and and everyone tries to do their best work. But I treat every job with the same level of respect. So whether it's done by writer A or writer C, I'll work on it just as hard to make it just as good. So it's a learning experience for everybody. When you work with a new writer, whether they're, you know, they're seasoned or not, there's a learning curve. You know, there was a learning curve with Larry. There was a learning curve with Ben Percy. There was a learning curve with Howard Mackey when I did Spirits of Vengeance. So you have to adapt and mold to each other's style. And, you know, it's really not until you have five, six issues under your belt where you begin to feel comfortable or not, you know, might not like it, but you still got to do it, you know? Adam, Jerry has said something, he said on social media, it's become a bit of a maxim, certainly in the way I think about comics. And Jerry said, the writer tells the artist his story. And then the artist tells the world the story. So as we transition into Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood, which is the other issue we're going to take a look at, um, issue number one of that incredible series that we have going on right now. Is that something that, that, that hits home with you? Is that something that you find resonant? Yeah, it does resonate. And I've never thought of it that way. Although it, it makes a lot of sense. The writer is communicating his story directly with editorial, but in the end to the artist. And I don't see myself communicating the work I do to the world. The world's a big place. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I think if I thought that big, it would be difficult to do the job. You know, I'm communicating it so the editor understands it. So if the writer has any criticism or something that, that I didn't quite get, I want to hear. I want to hear the, these are the pros. Thinking about the world and the fans, yes, I want the fans to like it. But I don't really do it for them. Mm. I do it for me. Because if I didn't like doing it, I wouldn't be doing it. I hope they like it. I hope they appreciate it. But I'm really not doing it for them. I love that. I probably shouldn't say that because they're the ones that, that, that write my paycheck, to, you know, to be honest. <laughs> I want a CBR article that just says, Adam Cuba tells the fans <laughs> to suck it. <laughs> Thinking about this story in Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood, as well as Wolverine number 90, it gets my brain rolling about the choreography of a fight. And specifically because Wolverine is someone that is so tactile and with his claws, that is such a, an important part of how he moves, how he fights, as opposed to someone who blasts, you know, beams out of their eyes or is, you know, using a, a different kind of weapon or energy powers or something. Wolverine is so like, there's a visceral quality to that action and a, a fluidity to it. And there's that the large vertical spread in Wolverine 90. It starts with the smaller panels and goes down to the larger panels. And then when you're getting into the Weapon X Wendigo fight in this uh, Black, White, and Blood, there's a lot of movement. What is it for you that helps you visualize the fight scenes and the choreography in your work? That, that's a great question, Ryan. It's the story. The story is my roadmap to what I do. That gatefold in Wolverine 90 that, that you mentioned with the little panels getting bigger and bigger and bigger, um, well, there was a beginning where they, they fight and they're kicking their butt through the whole thing and there's an, an end. So the choreography is really them just beating the crap out of each other. But that's what, the, that's what Larry wrote. That was the story. And the thing that I found interesting was I wanted to squeeze as many panels as possible into this gatefold. <laughs> that's, that's what I had in my mind, you know? I want to put as many as I can into this gatefold. <laughs> so, I don't know how many are in there. 28 panels. 28, 28 panels. panels. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, the Black, White, and Blood, similarly, I was working within a 16-panel grid. Now, the, the, the two-page spread of Windigo getting the jump on Wolverine, giant two-page spread, this had to sing. I, you know, I had to make this great. But what's going to make this great 
is the lead up to it, which is why I packed in, you know, 32 panels before that. It's a slow moving panel to panel. You got to look at each panel, see what's going on. That way, the page turn is even that much more dramatic. It's like, holy crap, you know. But it's really the story that dictates how a fight should be choreographed. I mean, uh, the panels before that two-page spread, that 32 panels, um, it, it's really like you're editing a movie together. You know, I could take those panels and draw them all separately on different pieces of paper. And depending on how you wanted to shoot that movie, you could move them around. And, and you know, and I kind of did that. I had the, you know, in Photoshop, I had the thumbnails done. And said, well, I could put it this way. I could do it this way. You know, because what I was working from was a plot. I think it was like a, a one page plot that Jerry had written. So I had a lot of leeway with how I wanted to tell a story, what I had to, you know, as long as I got from the beginning to the end with some stuff in the middle, I, I had a story. There's a subject that I'm very fascinated by, whether it's Wolverine 90, whether it's Black, White and Blood, whether it's stuff that you're working on after we're done talking today is the idea of mistakes. And I don't know if someone asked me, I don't know if, if Adam Cuber makes mistakes. I don't know. But I'm just curious about your philosophy on that, on when you're penciling something, certainly when you're inking something, if your hand slips, if something goes awry, I am just generally fascinated from the artistic perspective of seeing a mistake as an opportunity. I was just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, you, there's different kinds of mistakes. I make mistakes every day. The work is never, ever perfect. If it's perfect, that's when I'm going to put my pencil down and say, I'm done. Uh, you know, why do it anymore? It's perfect. It's never perfect. So there's those types of mistakes. The other type of mistakes maybe you're, you're also talking about are creative mistakes. Like you're filling in blacks on, an, on a character and the brush doesn't slip, but it goes into a place where you're not expecting it. And you look back and say, that's kind of cool. I'll just follow that, you know? That happens all the time. And lately it's been happening more and more because my process for working is I'll do all my penciling and my penciling really consists of a rough. It's, it's basically a full-size rough, but that's what I'm inking over, you know, and I ink all the outlines first and then I'll quickly rough in where my blacks are going to be and I'll start filling in the blacks. I don't do rendering. I just fill in the solid blacks and the solid blacks will dictate where everything else is going to go. Now, I'm not just putting solid blacks in here, there, here, there. I, I kind of have an idea where I want to put them, but I'm not sure. You know, you can't really see the work until the work is done. And then you'll see, wow, I really screwed that up. Or nah, that doesn't look so bad, you know, <laughs> but the mistakes are a joy. Mm. You know, the mistakes were, were this cover that I just did. And I had never done that style before. And thankfully, the editor liked it. Um, there was a lot of. I won't say mistakes, but a lot of taking chances, you know, and I didn't know if it would work or they could have been mistakes, but because part of it, you know, part of it was conventional. I work both conventional and digital. It's easier to take chances digitally because you can always undo it. But what's fun is when you bring, you know, when I bring a conventional piece in front of me and I start taking those same chances because I can always fix it. You know, ink is no longer permanent. Ink is no longer ink. You bring it to Photoshop, you erase it, you fix it, you manipulate it, it's done, you know? So it's it's different and it's better, you know, than, than it's been before. There's a lot, it's a lot easier to take chances. I, I've been pencil and inking my own stuff for like 15 years now. Um, before that, I never had the confidence or the speed to do it. I was always afraid I'm gonna, you know, I got pencil really tight and then I got to ink it really tight, but that's kind of doing double duty. It's kind of a waste, but that's why things took forever. My dad would always ink over his rough stuff. And I'd be like, how do you do that? How do you do that? You can always fix your mistakes. You just, you know, I, I guess doing sketches and commissions, I would never pencil type because I just want to get the thing done and, you know, and hand it over and you're on the clock and, you know, people are waiting and, and whatnot. So I just brought that, you know, all your experiences kind of trend into your work. I brought that commission experience into my work, the digital mm -hmm. experience I brought over into my conventional work. And it all kind of melds into something that you're working on today. Tomorrow, it might be different. The mistakes are good, though. I think they're good. Yeah. Thinking about this story for Black, White, and Blood, uh, and we should say that this is a story about uh, set during the Weapon X period of Wolverine's life. It's him versus a Wendigo 
It is very bloody. It is wild. The other story is about Wolverine versus Sabretooth knockdown drag out fight. Usually in these reading clubs, we give a breakdown of the stories and the plots, but I've loved this conversation so much. Mm-hmm. We don't have to go too much into things. It's just, these are awesome, really cool stories. The thing that I wanted to touch on here for the story that you and Jerry did is the idea that this is a book that is black and white and the only color that is used is red. Does that change the way you think about what this book is going to look like, the way you're going to tell the story, especially as Jerry is kind of doing it, it seems Marvel Method style, where he's giving you the plot and he's coming in later to fill in. What's that process like on this book? Because it's you and Frank are taking on a lot of the storytelling ahead of time. It's another restriction, which I love. You have to tell the story with using only one color. We know it's going to be a bloody story because Wolverine black, white, and blood. But I think the restriction opens up creative opportunities. You know, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to, or maybe whenever we see blood, that's going to be the red. Maybe when, you know, the, the key moments of the story are kicked up a couple of notches, those panels are going to be all red. So I think we lead more towards, you know, the blood in the story was going to be the red object. It's funny because I was going to color the story myself and I can color, but digital coloring, there's a learning curve for me. And I figure, how hard can it be? And I started doing, I'm like, man, I, I, I need Frank. I, and Frank is like the best of the best, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't give him any cues or any restrictions. I wanted to see what he was going to do. And and he came up with stuff that I wouldn't have thought of. And, and anytime I work with Frank, you know, which is most of the time, it's just a joy. And to see what he comes up with, I love giving him the freedom of no color notes. My job is easier. And I think he likes it because he has more freedom to do what he wants to do. And this is no exception. Yeah. The story pops. It's fantastic. Uh, All right. Last thing before we let you go, one thing I wanted to to ask you about is we talked to a number of the other writers working on X-Men books lately. We've had Josh Kassara on working on X-Force stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you now, you know, having come back to Wolverine and X-Men stories, after you know years, you, you've sort of been around these characters so much. Are you involved in sort of the, it feels like there's like this world of X creators that they're building up. Everybody's seemingly working together. It's like the Krakoa of it all feels like it's <laughs> spread into the brains of all of, uh, of everybody working there. Do you, do you talk to the other creators like they seem to, especially the writers, talk to each other? No. i I would like to i don't i don't know them (laughs) josh (laughs) this is a note to josh who listens to the show reach out to i will put you in touch with adam if you need to yes you two are sweethearts let's talk (laughs) we we, we've chatted back and forth on twitter a couple times and and i love his work and he keeps getting better you know but even without the communication i feel like we're part of something really special and I do feel like it's a club that Pepe Laraz and, and De Silva started with the first two X books that came out. And they set a high watermark along with Jonathan Hickman, obviously. And I really do feel like, you know, I, I don't feel like I've done this before. I feel like this is new and fresh. And I feel fortunate to be in the same bag of creators, you know, on the X books. I just feel like it's a it's a great place to be, and and I'm I'm happy. Well, we are fortunate in a very similar fashion to to be able to talk to you about all this stuff. Really, genuinely, what a pleasure to look back on some monumental work. And I think with everything going on on Wolverine, Wolverine Black, White, and Blood stuff that uh, I think people will be talking about in a similar way that we talked about Wolverine number ninety in the future. So thank you so much for for joining us. Genuinely, so much fun. I appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Nice chatting with you again. You too. You're so goddamn humble and sweet. It just drives me nuts. You're <laughs> okay, the best. Okay. I appreciate you. Wait till we get off the air. Then you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> what a pleasure. What a delight. Cannot really believe at times the people that we get to talk to, to be honest, on this show. A legendary comic book figure, Adam Kubert. This was the best. All right, that is it for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, with help from Megan Bacala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. 
And Brad Barton is Marvel's Polis Audio Development Manager. And yes, he is the best there is at what he does. And what he does isn't very nice. And I don't know why he says that. It huh. doesn't make any sense. But like, you know what, Brad? Go with it. And it's better than being very nice. Yeah, fair That's enough. Much preferable. Sorry. You know what? Shut up, Brad. Yeah. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.